Let's take our scriptures and go to the third psalm this morning. We're nearing the end of our summer in the psalms, our conclusion of the summer in the psalms. And uh, we're going to be studying together today this third psalm and the very first psalm titled to us from David. John Blakely mentioned to me, by the way, so faithful back there, caring for us so that we can all hear what's happening from the front. Thankful for John and uh, thankful that we rarely notice him. He has that job where everybody looks at him only when everything has gone terribly wrong. And uh, love him back there, always serving, now with his head down below his uh, table so that nobody can see him. We love you, John. And uh, John, there he comes, there he goes. Thank you for coming up. You could not outlast me. I was going to keep going until you looked. John mentioned that a couple of you have already asked who sang that offertory. Uh, The group name for that is called Watershed Worship. There's two groups that uh, I know that sing that kind of music. If you if you particularly have a, a love for acapella and uh, quartet music, uh, there, there are several groups that do that. But uh, one that is one of my favorites is called This Hope. Uh, very uh, great group of guys. Several of them went to the Master's College. Uh, they're out of Anchorage, Alaska. And uh, This Hope. And then that, the group that we just listened to was called Watershed Worship. And uh, you can find them online. And uh, thankful for that. That blessing uh, for some of you uh, this morning and those lyrics, I trust, were a blessing to all of us together. Okay, All right. Third Psalm. Let's read this together. These are the words of God for us. Let's consider them carefully. We'll read, ask God for help, and then we'll study together. Psalm number three, a Psalm of David when he fled fled from Absalom, his son. Oh, Lord. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. These are the words of God for our consideration given by the power of the Spirit through the pen of David. Let's pray and ask God for help. Father, thank you for this privilege that we have for these moments now to hear from you. You have spoken to us all that you intend to speak, and we now have the privilege of hearing your voice. We thank you for your word. And we ask that you would Grant us special grace for these few moments together that we collectively would would understand that we would we would grasp the weight of what you've spoken to us in this portion of your word, that it would affect us, that it would renew us, that we would think differently because we've encountered your word and heard you speak. That we would live differently. Because we have seen in the mirror of your word those corrections and changes 
the, the refining fire that, that works through your word would have its full effect, altering our lives as we go from this place together. So we come to you asking for you to do what only you can do. For we know that apart from your spirit's power, we as natural men have no capability of understanding your word. So, Father, both in proclamation and in reception, we ask that you would help us. May your spirit be evident, both in the delivery and in the receiving of your word. And may the fruit of this time together be for eternity's eternity's sake. May the praise of your grace extend because we have been here together and we've been in your word hearing from you this morning. I ask for your help. We ask boldly for your help. Because we come not in and of ourselves and not in our own righteousness. But in the earned righteousness of our Savior. And in the forgiveness that he's provided through the cross. We come to you in Christ and ask for your grace in his name. Amen. Many of us have either said or had it said to us in moments of particular weakness or selfishness, the universe does not revolve around you. Maybe you've been on the delivering end of that. You've talked to someone that you love or someone that you're having a hard time loving and you're saying to them, hey, you need to, you need to get out of this selfish mindset because the world doesn't revolve around you. The universe is not going around in its orbit with you at the center. Or maybe you've been on the receiving end as I have in selfishness and having someone I trust lovingly rebuke you and say, the universe does not revolve around you. Unfortunately, when we face trials, when we face suffering, even as God's people, even with the transformation of our hearts, the weakness of our flesh often reveals how much we actually believe that the universe does revolve around us. Our response in the midst of suffering often betrays a a reality in our thinking that we really believe that if all were all were as it should be, we would be happy, healthy, wealthy and wise. If the world would ultimately respond to our sovereignty, these things would not be taking place. God's people gathered together face a very helpful psalm from David this morning. We have here an opportunity to see persistent deepening in our understanding of what truly is at the center of all that exists. Not scientifically, how does how does orbiting work and what orbits around what, but at the center of all that exists, this third psalm reveals to us that the character of God is the center of of the universe for the people of God. This third psalm seems to drive home that reality that we are not at the center. David does not view himself at the center, but rather the character of God, the person of God, the deity of God, the majesty of God is at the center of all that exists. David has an unwavering commitment to Yahweh God right in the eye of a storm. You cannot be closer to suffering than David is in the moments considering this psalm. 
Context is always king as we study our Bibles, as we so often talk about here. But the beginning of this psalm, we have a helper in the context. Because this is the first of the psalms that has a title. And this title gives us a glimpse into the circumstances that, that, that are surrounding these words. No doubt you remember this scenario. This is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. That's Second Samuel chapter 15. If you wanted to do a refresher later on today. Second Samuel 15, beginning in verse 33, the plan of Absalom comes to its fruition. He has been secretly gathering the people's allegiance. And at the right moment, unknown to David, he has revolted against David's reign. And his own son is now rising up in mutiny with the people behind him. So David's only option, with a warning from a friend, is to flee for his life. Absalom's intention is clear. To kill him, to wipe away his family from the throne, and to establish himself as the leader of Israel. And David flees from his own son, knowing, knowing that God is on the throne of heaven, knowing that God has covenanted with him and with the character of God at the center of his universe, David pens this third psalm. Now, certainly, as we study it this morning, we are arguing from a greater to lesser argument, right? I mean, none of us, at least we haven't heard about it. And if this has happened, we need to hear about it. None of us have faced mutiny from our own sons, None of us have been fleeing and hiding in caves because our family members have sought to wipe us off the face of the earth so that they can have the power that belongs to us. I'm sure that we don't relate to this because as far as I know, there are no monarchs in our midst this morning. There's no absolute reigning power here. If you are, the universe does not revolve around you. Okay. So we are arguing from a greater circumstance to a lesser. So we're looking at a a trial and suffering that ultimately we really, really struggle to relate to. I mean, in some of these psalms, we find ourselves struggling to connect ourselves to the context, not just because of the distance we have culturally to what David's going through, but the distance experientially. This is suffering at a a level that, that we have not experienced But what we find in this third psalm is that David's response in the most severe suffering connects and correlates directly to how we would respond if we are to respond biblically to our suffering in this life. So what is great and what is grand directly connects to what is small and what you might perceive as insignificant suffering and trials in your life. And because of the world in which we live, you are here this morning either suffering or having suffered or preparing to suffer. There is no way to wiggle out of the implication and the application of this third psalm. David has fled from Absalom and he has at the center of the universe the character of God. Whether you have suffered and still face the lingering effects of that suffering, or whether you are in the midst of suffering now, in the eye of the storm, in the crucible of the pain, as David is here, or whether God is preparing you this morning to set his character at the center for the upcoming suffering that faces you, I can be confident of this. We all benefit from a study of the third psalm. 
Now, just by way of detail, because it's always been a curious detail to me, there's these little words out in my text to the right of the text. Selah. Um, You notice that we didn't read those words because I believe the best understanding of what's going on there, those are Hebrew markers for the music to stop, to pause, almost like interludes, to consider what has just been sung and then to move forward to the next stanza. So these selahs are these pauses that are built in are for us to be able to pause in our reading or pause in our singing and to consider what we've just said and to meditate, to, to think clearly before we move to the next section. We have one at the end of the first stanza, one in the middle of the second stanza, and then ultimately the psalm closes out with a selah, which should cause us to pause and to consider all that we have said, read, or sung in the third psalm. So, this morning in this third psalm, we find that the character of God must be at the center of the universe for the suffering people of God. We say that again. There's one umbrella theme. If there's one overarching theme that stands over top of the third psalm, it's that the character of God must be the center of the universe for the suffering people of God. With the implication that the suffering people of God would bring glory to God in their suffering, right? So the character of God must be at the center of the universe for the suffering people of God if they are to successfully exist within suffering to the glory of their faithful Heavenly Father. Now, there are three kind of angles that we see from the text, and this is certainly not an exercise in creativity. We're simply going to look at these stanzas and see what comes clearly from these stanzas as it relates to the centrality of the character of God, which all creation orbits around. So remember, the character of God must be at the center of the universe for suffering people of God. Notice then in the first stanza, verses 1 and 2, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So the first angle of this centrality of the character of God in David's suffering is that the character of God is at stake in the suffering. The character of God is at stake in your suffering. And certainly was at stake in David's suffering. David piles up the many's in verse number one and verse number two. And just slowing down enough to notice what he says, he begins with the covenant name of God, which we've referred to in the first two Psalms. Oh, Yahweh. O promising, faithful God of Israel. Many foes have come. Many are rising against me and many are saying about me. So David looks from the cave or looks from the forest or the desert, wherever he has fled to, wherever he's finding refuge in the midst of the suffering. And he sees many. He feels the weight of the press of people that are are with Absalom coming after him. His own son and his own nation, which he has led by God's providential design, is now against him. Perhaps you felt this same measure of suffering. David can, can only see the many. But at the heartbeat of the attack, at the central place of the suffering is that closing line of verse number 2. 
These many who are the foes, who once were friends, but now are enemies. These many that have risen up against, who once bowed below, are saying this about David's soul. There is no salvation for him in God. You see, we could be trapped into thinking that this scenario doesn't apply to us. I mean, we don't have a kingdom. We don't have a throne. We don't have mutiny. We don't have kids trying to kill us who have got a nation who's now coming after us, military forces. We can think, well, this is all an earthly standpoint. This is a temporal vantage point. David is simply crying out to God, give me back my kingdom. But at the center, at, at the very heart of what David perceives in the attack and in the mutiny is the character of God being called into question. So what is at stake in David's suffering is the character, the faithfulness of Yahweh. The faithfulness of His Word as the promise giver and the promise keeper. David makes that clear because he says many are saying of my soul. It is his, it is his inner man that is being, is being laughed at and scoffed at. And it is in direct relation to his God. So what is at stake in the middle of David's suffering is the very name of God. The saving God of Israel. The promising Yahweh God of the covenant with David. Who in 2 Samuel 7 promised that David's throne would be established forever. That his seed would go forth and that ultimately would culminate in an eternal reign. Through our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of David. So David is aware that it is the character of God that is at stake in his suffering. God's name is at the center of the the defeat and the justice that David cries out for. David is confident of God's promises. He's confident of the covenant that God has made with him. And in this attack and in this mutiny, what has happened with these enemies is they are attempting to and they are saying that David has been abandoned by God. Brothers and sisters, when you suffer, there is a very real potential that you will be tempted to believe that you have been abandoned by God. That his his promises to you in the new covenant through Christ have been left behind, that that he is not intimately aware of your scenario, that he does not love you and care for you as a son or a daughter adopted through his son. David faces the accusation that God has abandoned him. And therefore, the character of God is at stake in this suffering. It's at stake in the justice that needs to be poured out upon these enemies. And it is at stake in David's response to this suffering. So in all suffering scenarios... Though we are working from the greater to the lesser, God's covenant faithfulness is at stake. For our church family, many of you remember our study in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, where we saw clearly that the good things working together for those who are called according to the purpose is is really found in the next verse. Because the ones whom he foreknew, he designed to be conformed to the image of his son. So the covenant nature that we enjoy, the covenant relationship that we enjoy with the God of heaven is no different. In one sense, what David is expressing, 
here in verse number 2. The accusation is that God is abandoned. There is no salvation for David before Yahweh God. And as we suffer, we face the exact same temptation, the same accusation that God has abandoned us. So the character of God is at stake in your suffering and in my suffering. Both in the vindication of our salvation and in our response in the midst of that suffering, in the eye of the storm. So the character of God must be the center of the universe for the suffering people of God. Firstly, in, in, in so much as we recognize that it is his character that's at stake. We are here and we are in a relationship with God for the purpose of putting on display his glory on this earth. Therefore, every time we suffer and every time we respond in suffering and every time we face accusation in suffering and every time we're persecuted for our relationship to Christ, we have opportunity to put on display the character of God, to champion the faithfulness of God in all that he does, the goodness of God in all that he has planned and ordained. It's his character. It's at stake in your suffering. But secondly, we find that the character of God is not only at stake in suffering, it's also the foundation for hope. So the character of God is at stake in suffering for David's experience of this mutiny. And in the second stanza, we find a second angle in which we see the center of the universe place that God's character plays. The character of God is the foundation for hope. David begins verse 3 with a contrast. It's as if he shifts gears. But you, as opposed to the many, the many who are now his foes, the many who have risen against him, the many who are saying God's character cannot be trusted. There is no salvation for David in Yahweh God. Opposed to the many is you, God. But you, but you, here's what is true about God in all of the animosity and all of the anger and the mutiny and the rebellion of this Attempted overthrow for David, the character of God is the foundation for his hope. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Brothers and sisters, if you have suffered and faced the ongoing effects of suffering, or if you are suffering this morning, or if you are being prepared for suffering this morning, understand that at the, the foundation level for hope, for joy, for peace, for worship in the eye of the storm, that foundation must be laid with the character of God. Notice David's poetic descriptions of God's character. In verse number three, we find him describing God as a shield. A shield about him. Still no mystery to us what a shield is. It's the protecting guard around a soldier. You'll remember Goliath's shield bearer, the man who walked with this massive shield. No doubt that guy was feeling good about his situation in the battle since he had to carry the biggest man on the planet's shield. David says that Yahweh God has not abandoned him, 
No matter what is coming against him, the character of God is the foundation of his hope in that God is his protector. God is the shield around him. God is the one who buffers all that comes. And anything that touches David, touches David through the shield. He views Yahweh as his protection. How often do you revel in the protecting work of your God? When you face suffering, persecution, trial. Know that the foundation of hope is found in the protecting character of God. You have not been abandoned. You are not exposed. You are not left out in the open with the enemy attacking and no defense mechanism. Your shield is God himself. He has a covenant relationship with you through his son. Therefore, you can know the protection of God as a foundation peg of hope. Secondly, David goes on in verse number three and says that God is his glory and the lifter of his head. David says that Yahweh God is my glory. Yahweh is in and of himself the power and the majesty of David's existence. Apart from his covenant relationship with God, there is no glory for David. There is no power. There is no majesty. And David does not say, you give me glory. He says, you are my glory. Yahweh is my boast. He is my glory. He is my power and majesty. I am his. And all that I've been granted is for his name's sake. David's kingly reign, his anointing as king, the shepherd, the lowliest one. Is there anybody else? Well, there is David. Get him. All of that from the beginning to now, he recognizes as the glory of Yahweh upon him. The character of God is the foundation of hope for David in the midst of suffering. He has a warrior king who is his protector. He recognizes his own glory is directly and, and inseparably connected to Yahweh God. And thirdly, we find this comforting description. He calls Yahweh the lifter of his head. That's a fascinating phrase. I remember since, since my dad is here, it's appropriate to use some illustration with my dad that doesn't make him look bad. So... Um, you know all those other ones we've used, so now we'll use one that's favorable. I can remember as uh, a young athlete coming off the court after losing and consistently, not consistently losing, but consistently when we lost, which was so rare, so rare. When we lost, having my dad near the door where we were going to the locker room or going upstairs to change or whatever the case, having him near the door or see me immediately after the game or even at home say, chin up. Get your head up. You walk up the court with your head up. There might have been other words used to help me see the motivation there. No moping. Um, head up. So when I read that God is the lifter of David's head, immediately my, my mind runs to an athletic metaphor, which you're so weary of hearing. So athletic metaphor, a dad who says, son, you've faced defeat. Put your head up. There are things that you can be joyful about as you walk off this court. Now, if we're arguing from the greater to the lesser in Psalm 3, 
with that illustration of chin up or head up, we're arguing from the lesser to the greater. Because David here says God actually picks his head up, which is victorious and in a sign of worship for David, putting his face toward heaven. Yahweh God does not simply say chin up, you'll get him next time. He doesn't say it's going to be okay. He takes his his covenant relationship, extends itself, and it lifts David into worship, even in the midst of his suffering. This is God who does this. He protects. He places glory, power, majesty. And he lifts David's head in victorious worship, even in the midst of mutiny, rebellion, and suffering. You see, the character of God is the foundation for hope in suffering. If you do not know God, if these descriptions are foreign, if you've never considered him deeply, if you don't make a practice of renewing your mind with the truths that he's revealed to us about himself, you have a weak foundation for hope in the midst of suffering. Psalm 3 is such a benefit to us, brothers and sisters. We see this same picture of lifting the head in Psalm 27, verses 4 through 6. And then again in the 110th Psalm, verses 5 through 7. One showing worship in the head lifted toward heaven. The other in victory as the head is lifted in triumph over the enemies. This is the character of God. And it is the foundation for hope. It's at stake in the suffering. And it certainly is the centerpiece of the existence of of the suffering children of God. David doesn't stop there. He moves on and he goes to verse number four and a public declaration of this character of God as his hope. I cried to the Lord. I cried aloud. I wept before him. I screamed out to him and he answered me from his holy hill. Those who have a covenant relationship with Yahweh never, never lose the privilege and opportunity To have his ear. Already we've prayed this morning. And we've made reference to. The opportunity to come boldly. Into the throne room of God. We enter into his presence. And we request help. Grace from him. We do so. As the privilege of being. Covenant people of God. David as the. Kingly covenant bearer, the one who has been set apart for Israel, the one who has had promises from God directly to him, has this at the foundational level of his hope. He has prayed in the past and God has always answered him from his holy hill. God's faithful listening ear and response to David is a foundation for hope in the most dramatic suffering. How much more should it be the center and foundation for hope for us in suffering? God hears us if we are in Christ. God responds to us. He speaks directly to us. His spirit communicates his word to our understanding and applies it to our lives. Though David is removed from the place of his authority. He recognizes that God has not been removed from his place of authority. And from that holy hill, God has always answered what he has heard from David. And David is confident, he is hopeful that God's character will be the foundation even in this drastic scenario of suffering.
Verse number five. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Not only is God the protecting shield around David, not only is God the glory of David in power and majesty, not only is God the one who lifts David's head in victorious worship in the midst of suffering, not only is God the one who has not been removed from his holy hill, who is still hearing King David and who will respond to King David, here we find that God is sustaining King David. God is a sustaining God for his covenant people. Isn't this a dramatic and understated line in this poem? I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. We just read that and our eyes just fly past that. I mean, we just go right over top of that. Okay, yeah, David slept, got up, good, God, God sustained him. Every breath we take is a gift from God. Every beat of the heart is a gift from God. And we just kind of move past that flippantly. Let's not forget the context. David actually means every time I lay down to go to sleep, there's a reality that that is potential that means somebody could come and kill me. Everyone is against me. Many are gathered around. My son is looking to, to value and to exalt the one who kills me. David is powerfully aware. Of the sustaining grace of God. He's powerfully aware that each morning as he wakes. He has been sustained by the covenant keeping God of heaven. How aware are we. That we are being sustained even now. By the covenant keeping faithful God of heaven. Who has not neglected us. Who has not abandoned us. Who has not released us to somehow survive on our own. Which we could never and will never. Our creator is also our God. Has made covenant through his son. And sustains us. When we sleep he doesn't sleep. When we wake he has held us. And sustained us through the night. From the greater to the lesser. May our morning worship be marked by the reality of the character of God. As a foundational element for hope and suffering. God is alive. God is alive and powerful and knows you. He knows me. He watches us. He hears us. He sees our lives. He shields us. He picks our heads up. He grants glory to us. He sustains us. This is the character of God. And these are the meditations of one who is in the eye of the storm of suffering. And these are the foundations for hope. Finally, David ends this section in verse number six. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David is courageous. I mean, from the earliest time, if you grew up around the church, you've known of the courage of David. This is the guy who, as a young boy, went down to the stream, picked out some rocks, took his little slingshot, his little his little leather piece, and walked out to the guy who had the other guy who carried a shield. We've known about the courageous David. But this is courageous David in suffering. This is courageous David on the run. This is in the tent. This is in the cave. This is 
with minimal food and minimal loyal friends. This is David when many have become foes and many have risen against him and many are saying God's promises are not sure. This final mark of the character of God is the foundation for his hope. He will not be afraid because God is with him. The courage needed in such suffering is found only in confidence that God is alive, powerful, good, and faithful to His covenant people. When I was in high school, there was the slogan that was all over everybody's jacked up trucks. It said, no fear. And basically it meant, I'm tough because I don't fear anything. Well, they they always did and they, they always do. But for the believer, for the one who is in a relationship that God has ordained with him, the one whose sins have been covered, who has been brought near, who is an enemy but now is a son because of Christ, there is, there is a legitimate no-fear sign. Not because of us, not because of our strength, not because of our bravery, not because of our, our, our ability to sustain or protect ourselves. There's no fear because he is protecting He is sustaining. He is the shield. He's the lifter of the head. He is the one who is for us. Therefore, who could stand against us? It's God, our creator, the Holy One of heaven. He is the one who grants fearless courage in the face of suffering. So, brothers and sisters, we see that the character of God is at stake in our suffering as it was in David's suffering. And the character of God is the foundation for hope and suffering as it was the foundation for hope in David's suffering. God has not changed. There is no other God. Nor has the foundational place for hope been altered. So how well do you know God? How informed are you of the character of God? How deep is your appreciation and understanding for just these qualities, which are certainly not exhaustive, of the perfections of our God? How well do you establish the foundation for hope when you're not suffering? And what is it that you lean upon when you are suffering? And how is it that you continue to develop and grow and be strengthened after suffering? Where do you receive the information that you process as the character of God? Is it from your own mind and your own making? That's not the true God of heaven. Or is it from his word, his perfect and completed revelation of himself? Protector. Glory. Lifter of the head. Hearing ear and speaking mouth. Sustainer of life. Motive for courage. This is the character of God and it is the motive or it is the foundation rather for hope. Thirdly then in the final stanza of this song we find one more angle of the centrality of the character of God in the universe for the suffering people of God. So the character of God must be the center of the universe for the suffering people of God. And we've seen this because the the, the character of God is at stake in suffering. And the character of God is the foundation for hope in suffering. 
And thirdly, we find in this final stanza, verses 7 and 8, that the character of God is the motivation for prayer and suffering. It's, it's the center. It's everything to David. Who God is and his relationship to David is everything to how David can view this mutinous suffering that he is enduring. So the character of God, thirdly, is the motive for prayer in suffering. This is a prayer. Verse 7 ends with, or begins rather with, a declaration. Arise, Yahweh, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to you, Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Arise and save me. David's cry to God is a desperate plea. From the eye of the storm, from the middle, from the crucible to to, to God, who is recognized here, firstly, in his covenant relationship and secondly, in his personal relationship to David. Two terms, two different names given for God. Arise, get up, Lord, as in take action on my behalf and save me, O my God. This is a personal cry from David and it is motivated by the character of God. God's covenant relationship to David is highlighted in its personal connection to David. So how personally are you aware of the covenant promises that accompany your relationship to God through Christ? If you're in suffering, it is that character of God that will be the foundation for hope and it will drive you to prayer. Prayer has been said, has been defined as the breath of dependence for the believer. Why don't we pray as we should? Why in suffering do we find ourselves often praying more than we ever do? Because it is in suffering that we are reminded that we are incapable of altering our circumstances. We are incapable of changing the scenario. And in that moment, our independence is crushed and our dependence is lifted and we cry out to God. David here has set himself on a course of crying out to God because of the character of of God. It is the motivation for his prayer. Why does he pray so boldly? Well, he tells us in verse number seven, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. David recognizes in the character of God that only God vindicates the righteous ones and punishes the wicked ones. A couple of cultural things here, striking the enemies on the cheek. We kind of wonder why. I mean, wouldn't some bigger damage be done if God were to take offensive against the enemies? What David has in mind here from their cultural setting would be the total disrespect and disregard for these enemies. To slap them on the face across the cheek was as disrespectful then as it would be today. This was a mark of God's aggression in saying, you are nothing You have no power. You have nothing. And you are worthless to me. Utter disrespect. Utter humiliation of the enemies of David. This is God's place. This is what he does for the wicked. He strikes them on the cheek. And he breaks their teeth. This is a familiar 
phrase from the psalm, we get this picture. And, and often, if you're like me, you start to think of teeth breaking. And you, you're all doing it right now. You're going like this, like, oh, breaking the teeth. This is not speaking directly of one human being crushing out the teeth of another, but rather of an animal whose teeth have been broken out, who are now relieved of all of their bite. They have no, they have no uh, weapon to which they can, or with which they can wield their evil desire. So it is God who slaps the faces of the enemies. It is God who sets them in their place. And it is God who removes from them the teeth of their aggression. Who renders them useless as predators. This is God's ability. This is God's character. He is always set against the wicked and always set for the righteous ones with whom he has covenant relationship. That ultimately is seen most pointedly in verse number eight. In the conclusion of this psalm, salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be on your people. Not only is the vindication of David in the attack and the the putting down of the enemies who have risen against him, God's. But the salvation of David on the positive, the restoration of David, the restoring of his rightful authority, the blessing upon him and upon all covenant people is only the work of God. God alone saves. John chapter 1, verse 13 reminds us that for those of us who have been given the right to be identified as children of God, It has happened not because we willed it to happen. It has happened not because someone willed it for us. It has happened because God has willed that we would be given life. That our blind eyes would be opened. That our deaf ears would be opened. That our dead hearts would be given life to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. Salvation is God's. He alone can save And his saving character is the motivation for the prayer of David. Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God. And finally, blessing on the people of God has only one source. It is God himself. So salvation and blessing, the poetic parallelism here, relays that all the good things that David longs for in his suffering, the end of the suffering the, the, the restoring to his rightful place. His only hope is for God to accomplish these things, which turns him from independence and drives him in dependence to cry out to the God who hears and answers from his holy hill. So, brothers and sisters, this morning, do you actively live out in your prayer and in your application the character of God as the one who only, the only one who can save and the only one who blesses his people? Say, well, I don't really know how to answer that question. Do you pursue and is your life marked by a pursuit of counterfeit saviors? Do you find yourself chasing counterfeit blessers, if you will? Do you pursue what the world says will give you salvation, will exalt you, will make you all that you can be? And do you seek the things that the world says will be the blessings, the ultimates, the greatest happiness? Or do you find yourself drawn again and again and again, motivated by the character of God to God alone as the one who saves and blesses?
Radical independence. Self-made men and women. That's the American way, but that is not Christian. And so we're faced with a dilemma as we live in a culture that promotes the opposite of what must be at the foundation of our lives as God's people. Our new hearts will be seen in our new dependence and our killing of the independence that rises up in our flesh. That we can save ourselves, that we can bless ourselves, that we know the way, that we can pursue the right end. But rather turning to the wisdom of God, crying out for the help of God, knowing that he alone sets the wicked in their place. He alone exalts and blesses the righteous. This removes revenge and vindication as a pursuit of our lives. As we turn this and ask God to do what his character demands that he does. So, the character of God must be the center of the universe for the suffering people of God. It's at stake in suffering, it's the foundation of hope in suffering, and it's the motive for dependence and prayer in suffering. The third psalm, Psalm of David, speaks not just to us as God's people, but indirectly speaks directly to you this morning, unbelieving person. If you're here today and you do not know God, you have no covenant relationship to Him through Christ, These promises, this confidence, this kind of prayer cannot be your experience. This is not a moral word. This isn't how to get along in suffering better. This is the privilege of the ones who are in a relationship to their creator. Now, that is a miracle in and of itself. That any of us here would be identified as having a relationship with our creator. Because like you, we were born in sin. Our creator God is holy without sin. And he cannot have it in his presence. We were born with the nature of Adam who was a sinner. And we have acted upon that from the earliest possible moment. Which has left us, like you, separated from God. Forever under his anger and wrath and his justice. But in his kindness and in his mercy, he sent his own son who humbled himself and became man. And this one who was God, man, perfectly obeying the standard of his father's holiness without our sinful nature went to a cross and died in the place of all who would believe. And there at the cross, provides substitutionary righteousness, obedience, that would be credited to their accounts, and provides substitutionary justice as God poured out His wrath on His Son, who was dying as if He had lived our lives, so that we might live eternally as if we had lived His life. So unbeliever this morning, this one, Jesus, is is the very culmination of the character of God. Gracious, compassionate, and slow to anger. And at the cross, He bore our judgment. It didn't end there. He went to the tomb. He was dead. He was killed. And on the third day, He rose again. This is no myth. This is no happy story. This is eternal life. 
because the grave is empty and our Lord Jesus, the one that we have given our lives to, that we place our confidence in, that substitution was made applicable to us. We have a relationship with God because the tomb is empty. He's alive and we now have victory in him. So if you're here this morning and you know nothing of these promises and you know nothing of this character of God, you must turn from your own way. You must turn from your sin. You must turn from your own wisdom and your own ability to save yourself. And with eyes of faith, look to Christ and believe what you cannot see. That at the cross, he died in substitution for your sin. And in the resurrection, provided eternal life for you and lives now eternally. And will return to gather his people to himself. Jesus said, come to me. But he said, all who will come to me must take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow me. Unbelievers, look to Jesus. If you do not, your suffering will be far greater than anything that David experienced in this psalm. Because you will not face human enemies. You will face a divine enemy. The one who created you. And his wrath will be poured out upon you in fullness. Look to Christ. Look to Christ in faith. And you will be saved. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ who come to Psalm 3 with all of the covenant blessings that are ours in Christ. We come to this with, with a, a fullness that even David could not appreciate. The character of God must be the center of your universe. Do you really live life revolving around God and his person and his work? Is the gospel at the center of everything, his covenant work in your life? It must be if you're to face suffering and to bring glory to his name. Look to Jesus. Walk by faith. May the character of God be at the center of our existence. Popular song today, one that has been a huge blessing to my wife and I as we have suffered in years past. From casting crowns, I will praise you in this storm. The chorus says, I will praise you in this storm and I will lift my hands for you are who you are. No matter where I am. Every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand. You never left my side. And though my heart is torn, I will, I will praise you in the storm. This is the heart cry of the one who has at the center of his being the character, the faithfulness of covenant Yahweh God of heaven. Father, we are grateful for your help in this study. We are moved by your word. We desire to be changed and affected, not just in this moment, but as we go from here, being doers of your word, setting our course for your character and your person and your work through your son in us to be at the very center of our lives. Finish this study time in us, bring it to its completion and its maturity. May we look more like your son who knew and knows your character fully because we have had this glimpse, these angles of the centrality of your character in suffering. Thank you for David. 
Thank you for recording for us and giving to us this faithful testimony from your servant. We are forever indebted to the work of our Savior who has made way for us to understand and to know you. We willingly and joyfully leave all other, all other things behind. Count them as rubbish that we might know you. Thank you. Use this time now, we pray, for your own glory as we leave here, fellowshipping with one another. May we be shaped and molded and continue to be shaped and molded by your word. We ask for that in Jesus' name.